Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 2. And this morning I'll read verses 1 through 6 of 1 John chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... Truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Well, let's once again look to God in prayer and ask for his help as we come to the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for its teaching about Jesus Christ, how he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, or you cleanse us from all unrighteousness by his blood, how he perfectly obeyed all of your commandments, how he laid down his life for our sins, how he today and at this moment even is our advocate on high whenever we sin. We thank you for this glorious gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit and now ask that you would grant us that spirit and that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Write your word upon our hearts by the Spirit's working and make us more like Jesus Christ, your Son. And open the eyes of sinners here today that they might be brought into a knowledge of the truth and a knowledge of you save their souls this very day, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've studied the theology of the Reformation, there is the idea of Scripture containing law and gospel. And as some have said, there's a mixture of law and gospel throughout the whole of the Scriptures. You see it in the Old Testament where you could argue certainly that there is a greater emphasis on the law than on the gospel. As John wrote in John 1.17, uh, that the law came through Moses, but then he said grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So there's more of an emphasis on the gospel, these Reformed theologians said, in the New Testament. And they're, they're right in what they say that. And you can look at some passages in the Word of God, whether Old Testament or New, and say, well, there's more an emphasis of the law there, and there's more of an emphasis of the gospel. 
Personally, I do not like all that much the way that this has led some people to look at a passage and say, well, here's law and here's gospel. Because it's all the Word of God, and we could argue it's all the gospel. I like to look at it more as you have grace and duty. And these things are not opposed to each other, and you can even say law and gospel. If we understand the law of God and the grace of God and the gospel of God and how they fit together perfectly, as one of the statements in our confession says, you don't have that confusion. So you see this, this idea here of grace and duty mixed together in this little section of 1 John that we've been focusing on here over the last few weeks. Verse 9 of chapter 1 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is that? Well, that's the grace of God in the gospel. There's grace. You sin, it's not the end of the world for you because of the grace of God. You don't have to atone for your sins. You don't have to live the rest of your life in a perfectly righteous way because even if you could do that, you could never save yourself. All you have to do is confess your sins to God. Humbly and sincerely acknowledge that you're a sinner and those sins will be washed away. That's the grace of God. But then we come to chapter 2 in the first statement, and John says, I write these things to you that you may not sin. In other words, you are to aim as a Christian not to sin. That's duty. And if we look at it in a wrong way, we could argue like many people do, that's really oppressive duty. To be constantly aiming not to sin, knowing that I can violate the law of God not only in my acts, not only in my words, including my careless words that I speak in private to someone, or even in my thoughts and my intentions and the motives of my heart. What oppression! That's law, some people say. But you see, grace and duty found together here in John's epistle. And then we come back to grace again, don't we? In the last part of verse 1. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. He pleads for us. In verse 2, He Himself is the propitiation of our sins. It's by His sacrifice, not by your atoning good works, that the wrath of God is silenced and pacified towards you. Grace, the grace of God, But it's as if John is, uh, in some ways, a spiritual schizophrenic because we come then to verse 3, and he's right back to the emphasis on duty. Now by this that we, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And he goes right on on that note through verse 6 and, and even beyond. He's like Paul Charges of license that came to the Apostle Paul did not deter him from preaching free grace in Jesus Christ. He said, I'm going to preach free grace, even though some people want to conclude from that they don't need to live a holy life. And the gospel of free grace, and knowing it as well as Paul did, that salvation is not of works, it's simply by the work of Christ on the cross, and the grace of God in Christ, motivated, motivated by His love for sinners, 
based on nothing good in them or anything good they've done, he still, knowing that gospel of free grace, did not hesitate to preach duty and mortification of sin and, as he stated it, the right use of God's law. The law is good, it's righteous, if we use it in a righteous way, as he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So in our passage today, chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, we see this point demonstrated regarding the Christian's duty. John has just made the point that we will sin, but if we do sin, we just need to confess our sins and they'll be washed away. We have an advocate with the Father when we sin. It is Christ, it is not ourselves, our own good works that pacify the wrath of God. There's the grace of God in the gospel but now this emphasis on the Christian duty. So let's look at this passage here, verses 3 through 6, under three headings. And those headings are knowledge, assurance, and obedience. First of all, knowledge. We have it at the beginning of verse 3. But now by this we know that we know him. So he's talking about knowledge here. And First of all, let me say that knowledge is very important, especially the knowledge of God. That's what John is talking about here. Knowing Him, knowing God, knowing God in Jesus Christ. Remember I said there were teachers who were teaching error that were troubling the churches to which he was writing. And these uh, false teachers, these heretics, they elevated knowledge in a great way. One of the ways they elevated it was that they, they talked about knowledge being very, very important, and they said there were certain things that you need to come to know as a Christian that you might not be able to ever come to know in this world. And only they and very select few like them would ever come to know those special things. And they limited that knowledge to themselves. They were the spiritual elite in a sense. But as we'll see, as we go on here in this passage and in 1 John, they elevated knowledge to such a point that they elevated it above practice. In other words, what we do in our lives. Knowledge was all important to them, and they were the ones that had the knowledge, so you had to look up to them. But the way you live your life is not really all that important. It's just coming to this knowledge you may be a good and righteous person outwardly in the way you live, but if you don't have this special knowledge, you're not one of God's special ones and the spiritual elite, so to speak. So they not elevated knowledge above practice to the point that they even denied that righteous living and obedient living was even important, let alone being the Christian's duty. So knowledge is important, especially the knowledge of God. And John here is talking about the knowledge of God, knowing God, and he's talking about knowing God in a saving way. Let's go back to a couple of statements in John's Gospel, chapter 16, first of all. John 16 and verse 3, where we have the words of Jesus, and then we'll read Jesus' words again in one of his statements in John 17. Notice John 16, verse 3, first of all. Speaking about the knowledge of God, Jesus says, 
instructing the disciples on the night before he was arrested and then crucified the next day. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. He's talking about the Jews. He's especially talking about the religious leaders of the Jews who knew their Bibles, their Old Testament. They knew a lot of things about God, but they did not know God personally. And that's what Jesus is saying here. They have not known the Father, and they have not known me. They don't have true saving knowledge of God. They're not real believers in God. They're not his children, spiritually speaking. And then John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus is praying to the Father, And he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And throughout the scripture, this phraseology, knowing God, refers to a genuine Christian. It doesn't always mean that, because in Romans chapter 1, it says they knew God. Although they knew God, they weren't really believers in him, not true believers, But this is the idea here. John means knowing God in a saving way. And this is also a very important theme in this epistle of 1 John. And he expresses this reality of truly knowing God in many different ways throughout the epistle. And I need to watch the clock because of our circumstances. So we're not going to turn to several passages, but let me just mention You can see some of them right on the page in front of you probably because they're there. Uh, But I'll just say them and you can follow as well as you can or you can just listen as I say them. In chapter 1 and verse 2, it speaks about eternal life as we saw in John 17, 3, having eternal life. In chapter 1, verse 6, it speaks about having fellowship with God. This is another way of expressing knowing God. In chapter 2 and verse 5, in our passage, it speaks about being in Him, in God, or in Christ. In verse 6, it speaks about abiding in Him. In verses 9 and 10, it speaks about being in the light. Remember chapter 1, verse 5, God is light. Well, you know God if you're in the light. If you're in the light, you know God. Chapter 2, verse 14, speaks about God's Word abiding in you. Chapter 2, verse 15, speaks of the love of the Father being in you. Chapter 2, verse 21, it speaks about knowing the truth. That's another way for expressing someone who has eternal life, someone who knows God. Verse 23 of chapter 2 speaks of having the Father and having the Son. Chapter 2, verse 29, the last verse, speaks of being born of God. Everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. And then chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, speaks about Christians being children of God. Chapter 3, verse 14, speaks about people who have passed from death to life. And then chapter 3, verse 19, speaks about people who are of the truth. They belong to the truth. They have the truth of God. And there are other expressions in John, but um, I didn't want to be comprehensive, but there's many different ways that he expresses this. So John is speaking about knowing God as a way of talking about people who have a saving knowledge of God, a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I'll just point this out. I can't get into a lot of the finer points because of our time constraints, but 
There are two words there for knowing God where it says, or excuse me, for knowing in verse 3. By this we know, and that if there's a difference in what John means in the use of those two different words, that would be come to know. And then the next word is a different word for know, but a common word for know, and sometimes they're just complete synonyms, but it says, by this we know that we know him, and it's a perfect tense. It's translated like a presence, present tense, but that's a legitimate way. It would legit, literally be translated, by this we know that we have known or have come to know him. At some point in the past, we came to know him, but we still know him. And that reflects a scriptural truth, that if you ever truly come to know God, you will never unknow him. To put it in a social media way, if you ever like God, you will never unlike him if you are really a child of God. And that's what it's saying here. And then just one other thing on verse 3 before we move on, or this part of verse 3 where it says, Now by this we know that we know him. And you can read commentators and find that they're sometimes equally divided. Sometimes you'll get a few more in one than the other uh, view. They're saying, now does that mean God the Father or does that mean Jesus Christ? And some will point, well, look, the verse before or the section right before, him referred to Christ, but now the one right after, it refers to God the Father. Remember what I pointed out about how John loved ambiguous statements of Jesus that he quoted and ambiguous statements of his own that he wrote. And I say, when you can't figure it out on something like that, assume he might mean something like, by this we know that we know him, that is, we know God in and through his Son, Jesus Christ. That's how I look at it. I think it makes it easy, easier when you're going through John, and I don't think you're being careless or lazy not to try to nail it down. In fact, I'll just say this, I think you're being persnickety if you're convinced you need to do that. Just my opinion. Uh, so knowing God, first of all, under this heading of knowledge, but then secondly, there's a different knowledge John is speaking of in verse 3, and it's this. It's knowing that we know God. Knowing that we know God, the first part of verse 3. Now by this we know that we know Him. So it's talking about the knowledge of God, but it's talking about also this knowledge, the knowledge that we know God, that we really know that we know Him. In fact, look back at John 5, 1 John 5, verse 13 for a moment, where you see this same idea. And frankly, we're going to see it all throughout this epistle. We've seen it already even in chapter 1. But here it's stating it in this very definite way, this idea about knowing that we know God. 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you that, you, that to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. What's the subject when we talk like that? Assurance. Assurance of salvation or assurance of grace and salvation. That's what's being spoken about here it's knowing that we know God, and that leads then to my next main heading. So we first have knowledge. Secondly, now we have assurance. Verse 3 again. Now by this we know that we know Him. 
That's assurance of salvation. We know that we know Him. And then it says, if we keep His commandments. He's giving us a way to know that we know God. John wants his readers, he wants all of his readers to know God. He wants them to hear what he has to write and believe it and be saved. But he also wants all of his readers to know that they know God. There is such a thing as a Christian who, who knows God, because if he's a Christian he does know God, but who doesn't know that he knows God. Now you could read First John and think, after you read it, well, it's impossible that there could be a real Christian who doesn't know that he knows God, with some of the strong statements John makes about it. However, John knows that we're still in a sinful world, and not all of our knowledge is perfect, and we all have weaknesses as Christians, including weaknesses in our understanding, not only about God, not only about the gospel, but also about ourselves including about our own spiritual state, important as that is and clear as the Scriptures are about who is a Christian and who isn't. But people struggle. You may be a person who has struggled terribly with the idea of whether you are a Christian or not or the or a conviction of whether you are a Christian or not. Or you may know people or, you, or it may, both may be true. It's the idea of assurance. And John wants to encourage Christians so that true Christians who are reading these words or hearing them read in a church service, if they do know God, he wants them to know that they know God, that they might have greater peace in their souls, greater confidence in their life, greater assurance before God. We'll see it throughout this epistle. And he also wants to do a service not only to the believers, the true believers that are hearing what he's writing, He's trying to do a service to the unbelievers, even if they think they're Christians. He doesn't say to everybody, as long as you think you're a Christian, you're good. He doesn't say, well, if you think you're a Christian, then by definition you are a Christian, because you say you are. No way. Read John's epistle, you find out that's far far from the way John thinks, and it's far from the way he wants us to think. So he wants everyone who thinks he's a Christian but really isn't to be exposed for what they are. And he wants them to be convicted in their souls that their profession of faith is not righteous and it's not true. And he wants them to do that so they can repent of their sin and truly turn to Christ and be saved by grace through him. Let's look at some of the ways this notice of assurance comes out. First, it comes out in verse 3. Now, by this we know that we know him. John is helping you. He's giving you one way, and this is the main way that comes in our passage today, that you know him, and that's this, that we, excuse me, it's if we keep his commandments. That's a way you can know that you know God. Or let's look at verse 4. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now he's stating it negatively. He says that one way to know if you know him is you keep his commandments. That's a positive statement. But now he puts it negatively. He who says, I know him, harking back to what we saw in chapter 1, Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So he echoes that here in verse 4. Someone says, I know him, but then you look at his life. 
and you say, that's a person who knows God? Living like that? Living like the world while he calls himself a Christian? What does John think about that? He says that person is a liar if he doesn't keep Christ's commandments. He doesn't keep God. He's a liar. He can tell you all night and plead with tears that he really does know God. You shouldn't be so harsh in judging him. Well, why are you judging me? You ever heard someone talk like that? I have many times in my role as a pastor. But John says, no, no, no. That person is lying about himself. He may be trying to trick you and deceive you so you get off his case about his truckload of sins or his complete complete lack of obedience to Christ's commandments. But the point is, John says, the bottom line is he's a liar. So trustworthy, in other words, John is saying, is his statement in verse 3 By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He's saying that you can judge. Yes, I said that. You can judge people's spiritual state on the basis of it. That's what he's doing. When he writes this, he's not relying on prophetic knowledge because he's an apostle. I just happen to know stuff that you, the -the run-of-the-mill people of God, don't know. He's saying this is just a truth And you can try this at home. Look at your life. Look at the lives of people around you who call themselves Christian as in if they don't obey God's commandments, the truth is not in them. They're not Christians. They're liars. As I've said, he's doing here what he had already done in chapter 1, verse 6, if we say this. Verse 8, if we say this. Verse 10, if we say this. And it's not true, we're liars. Then let's look at verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. That's repeating again. Verse 3. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. The idea of assurance. By this, he says then, we know that we are in him at the end of verse 5. So there's assurance. This is what John is about here in chapter 2. This is what he is about in much of his epistle. Helping people to know if they truly know God. Then thirdly, we have obedience. That's the third theme. We have knowledge, we have assurance, and now we have obedience. The last part of verse 3. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. This is the idea of obedience. Let's look again at some passages in John's gospel. Let's look at one in chapter 15, and then let's look at one or two in chapter 14. First of all, John 15 and verse 10. Here's one of those phrases that Jesus uses, that John likes and uses. Talks about abiding in the truth, abiding in Him, having God's Word abide in you, and so on. He got that from Jesus. John 15, verse 10. Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You will be in a saving relationship with me. 
You will be in a relationship of mutual love with me. But notice his condition. If you keep my commandments, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then chapter 14, verse 21 Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, obey my commandments, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. See, in a sense, John could say, I'm not making this stuff up. Well, where, where did you get that stuff, John? Well, I got it from Jesus. This is what Jesus taught when he was on this earth, when he was with us apostles. This is what he told us. And he told us we're supposed to tell all of you all. That's the idea. Let's look at the last part of verse 5 there on this matter of obedience. Or the middle of verse 5, actually. It says, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. The love of God is perfected in him. Now, what is the love of God? Whenever you see love of God in the Bible, it either means God's love for you or for his people. That's called subjective, genitive, in the, in the original language, God's love for us, or it could be objective, meaning our love for Him, the love of God. We love God. And again, there are commentators that say one and commentators that say the other. And both are in focus in this epistle. And here's another place where I come down and say, because that's a way to express both, and John loved to do that kind of thing, I'm going to say I think he's probably making both points here, and he doesn't want you necessarily to split the hairs. But if there's an emphasis on one over the other, personally, I like the emphasis on what's called the subjective genitive, that it's talking about God's love for us. I look at it this way, and one of the reasons I do is because of this parallel passage where it uses similar wording in chapter 4, verses 10 to 12, where John says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, similar to the beginning of chapter 2. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. So I look at it this way. It could mean, when it talks about love for God being perfected, it's our love for God being perfected, that we're coming to greater and greater maturity, like the statement we have in um, Colossians 1.28, that every man is to be mature in Christ. But it also could be this. It's the love of God being perfected. I think of it in terms of gardening, that you're, uh, you're, you're a gardener and you like to raise flowers. So the love of God starts with the idea of saving his people in Christ, 
And he chooses them in him from before the foundation of the world. There's the beginning of the love of God towards sinners. Then he sends his son into the world and puts him on a cross to die for sinners. Then he sends the Holy Spirit into their hearts to awaken them and bring them to understand and embrace the truth of the gospel. And they do it. It's all wonderful stuff. I know God. But the love of God doesn't come to perfection until my brother says something nasty and untrue about me. And then we find out if I really have the love of God dwelling in me or not. And if I can take it and graciously go to him and ask him why he said that, tell him he ought to confess his sin to me and ask my forgiveness, and then he does... And then I have the grace to say, not, well, I can't forgive that because you turned so-and-so against me and now he thinks ill of me. But if I say, brother, I do forgive you and I love you, that's the love of God that began in eternity being perfected in me, coming to full fruition like a beautiful blossoming flower. That's the idea. This is obedience and the importance of it. And then we have verse 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. I feel bad right at this moment because someone told me this week that he's really looking forward to hearing me preach on John 2, verse 6. And so... He's not going to get much because of the time once again. But I'll give him something. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. The emphasis mainly in this passage is verse 3. We need to keep his commandments. Verse 4, if he doesn't keep his commandments. Verse 5, keeping his word. But then verse 6, it's stated differently. We ought to walk as he walked. And some people like to say, well, I don't like to talk about keeping God's commandments. I just like to talk about imitating Jesus. Because that sounds so much nicer and so much less threatening. But I'll just ask you this question. Is there any difference between those things? Remember how Jesus said it in John fifteen ten That uh, if you keep my commandments or keep the Father's commandments just as I have kept them? In other words, there's not a difference here. So I never really loved that phrase, and especially the wristbands and all that other stuff, WWJD. But I teach my kids in ethics class, who are all too young to even know anything about that, um, what would Jesus do? I teach them this. That's a good phrase as far as it goes. I mean, it's always good and right to ask, what would Jesus do? But just realize it's no difference than saying, keeping his commandments. They're the same. And I'll tell you why. Because let's say this. Let's say you're an eight-year-old and you're tempted to steal or break or hide from him your brother's toy. How many accounts do you have in the Bible 
of Jesus interacting with his brothers when he was eight years old or with his sisters, and in particular what he did with their toys or didn't do. A big fat zero. You have none. So how do you know what Jesus would do? Well, it's easy, isn't it? Because he kept his father's commandments. And those are not things that you and I don't know what they are. There's ten main ones and then a whole bunch, a few thousand other ones that all are hung together in those ten. In particular, if you're talking about your sibling's toy, your brother's toy, one of the main ones is this, you shall not steal. He never took his brother's toy when he shouldn't have. He never broke it because he was angry with him. And he never hid it so he could keep it for himself or just give his brother grief. He never did it. We should aim to be like Jesus. You should study his life a lot and aim by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to be like him more and more with every day of your life because that's the goal of God in bringing his love to perfection in you is making you more and more in the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. And it says also in verse 5, or verse 6, that we, it says, He who abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walked. We ought to walk as he walked. It's not only that it has to happen, it's not only that it will happen, it is your, it is my moral obligation to make it happen with God's help. Obedience, and all that we're saying about obedience, you need to know this if you're confused. Obedience does not earn you eternal life. It doesn't gain eternal life for you because you're such a good person. No, it simply reflects that God's love does dwell in you. It simply demonstrates that you are a Christian. It simply proves that your profession is real and it's not a lie. You earn nothing. You have nothing to boast about. That's the gospel of grace. But the point is, as Jesus is making here, as John is making here, you must do it. You ought, you have a moral obligation to walk as Jesus walked. And he doesn't mean perfect obedience. We've seen it already in verse 9 and 10 and chapter 2 verse 1 and following that Everybody has sin. You're a liar if you say you have no sin. So it doesn't mean perfect obedience, but it does mean true obedience. It does mean a faithful Christian life is what you live as a Christian. You're grieved about your sins. You confess them when you see them. You ask forgiveness, and then you get up and you go on, striving after new obedience through the power of the Spirit of God. That's an essential part of the Christian life. That's the point John is making. So let me say just a couple of things then in conclusion about, I'm going to focus on assurance of salvation because we're coming to it for the first time here. I just touched on this just a little bit. Something first about assurance and works. We saw it when we went through chapter 18 in our studies on the confession, not that long ago, but pretty long ago because we haven't had any of those in a while. But we saw that assurance rests on a three-legged stool. You may remember that. One is the work of Christ 
And the promises of God in the gospel, I argued the, 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 the most significant leg of the stool. But remember, with a three-legged stool, it doesn't matter how significant and how much uh, sturdier, if you will, one of those legs is. If one leg is gone, the stool falls. It flops. Second leg is the inward evidence of God's grace, and that's what we're talking about here. You can see in your life that the Holy Spirit is actually working. And then the third leg is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. It's that second leg, the evidence of God's work in you, in your life, that is a real, bona fide part of assurance. That it says that in the confession doesn't make it so. That it says it in 1 John 2 does. And it's not just in 1 John 2. It's in the whole Bible. Jesus had such cutting words for the Pharisees, not because they said they were the best Christians and had the reputation of being the most spiritual and godly people in Israel. He said those cutting words to them because they were exactly what he called them, hypocrites. They said they were, but their acts showed that they were not. And Works in your life are not a ground of salvation, period. But they are a ground of assurance. That's what our text is saying. And then one second thing about assurance is just, I'll state it very briefly. Something about assurance and religious experience, or something about assurance and feelings. And it's this. What John is saying here is basically this, that your feelings about your state, the state of your soul, basically mean nothing. The grounds of your assurance is never the way that you feel. And whatever religious experience you can tell about or talk about, in terms of determining whether you're a Christian... It basically means nothing. Oh, you know, one time God really spoke to me in an unusual way. Or I went to my prayer closet and I laid this before God and God just told me I'm really his child. Well, what about if you come up to John and he notices you're not keeping God's commandments? Should you have a ton of assurance like you say you have? No. But we'll get much more of this as we go through John. I go back to what I said at the beginning this morning. There's a mixture of gospel and law, grace and duty in the gospel, in the whole Word of God. And one of my points here, because this is the emphasis we have in John, one of my concerns here this morning is I want you all to embrace all that the gospel says whether it's grace or duty, both. I want you to embrace the entirety of the gospel. I want you to embrace the Christ of the gospel, not some other Christ, not some other Jesus. I want you to embrace the God of the gospel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because then, and only then, if you embrace all that the Word of God teaches as much about duty as it teaches about grace, then you will be the best Christian you can be. Not leaving your duty undone.
because you have knowledge or you have experience or you have a feeling in your heart, then you will be the most mature Christian you can be. Then you will be the most useful Christian that you can be. And God will be most glorified in your life. I'm going to close with one passage of Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7 and verses 13 and 14, especially for the benefit of unbelievers sitting here, but for all our benefit. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. In the Christian life, there's a gate and there's a way. The gate is the way that you enter into the Christian life. It's the opening or the door. And the way is the road that you walk in the Christian life. You need to go through the gate, and you need to walk on the narrow way. Going through the gate is confessing your sins, 1 John 1, 9, and believing in Jesus. He who has the Son confesses what is true about him. He's God and man, and his sins alone, can, his, his work on the cross alone can take away your sins. That's going through the gate, believing that message, humbling yourself and embracing Christ to save you. And then you walk on a path. And that's what John is writing about in our passage today. And it's a narrow path. And it's a path of obedience to his commands. Your salvation is not dependent on your ability to keep those commandments. But the truthfulness of your confession of Christ is. Are you a real Christian? Great. We're going to see you on that path. And for our part in this church, we're going to encourage you to stay on that path, walk as straight as you can down the middle of that path, and we are going to try to see that you stay on that path for the rest of your life. And the only way you will is by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit and when you come to the end of that path and have done that, like Frank Barker recently has done, one day we are all going to rejoice with the angels in heaven to see you at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these blessed truths of the gospel that we find here in 1 John chapter 2. Help us to understand them. Help us to believe them. Help us to embrace them from the heart. And Father, make us biblical Christians in the way we think, in the things we say, and in the way we walk. Help us to walk like Jesus did in obedience to your commands. We ask it in his name. Amen.